Hi, and welcome to the 17th episode of the Digital Sociology Podcast. Um, I'm Chris Till, and um, in this episode I'm talking to Tom Brock, who I'll introduce properly in a minute when in the actual interview, um, but um, we're talking about his research, uh, which is really fascinating, um, into esports and video games in general, and I think, uh, as well as doing some really great research, um, He's looking at some areas and, and applying theories to areas in ways that I, I've not really seen anyone else doing. Um, so uh, I think you'll, um, you'll enjoy this, this chat I had with Tom. Uh, for more information on Tom, I'll put some links into the, uh, into the description of the, the episode as well as some links to the, the articles of his that, that we're talking about. But you can also follow Tom on Twitter at TGJBrock. That's B-R-O-C-K, um, for more on what he's up to. And uh, as usual, um, it'd be great if, if anyone has any comments on this episode or, or on any of the episodes and wants to get in touch um, or, and has any kind of feedback or ideas for people um, I, uh, I should be talking to, I'd uh, really appreciate that. Uh, you can um, see my blog and, and contact me through there, which is this is not a sociology blog, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chris H Till uh, as well. So, hope you enjoy uh, this uh, this chat with Tom. Hi. So now uh, today I'm talking to Tom Brock, uh, who is a lecturer in sociology at Manchester Metropolitan University, and he's got interest in social theory, digital culture, and political protest. And some of what we'll be talking about today is his research on uh, on video games in relation to um, in relation to work and also um, some work he's done on 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 eSports so hi Tom hi Chris hi thanks a lot for uh, talking to me today so um, I've um, this podcast has been going for a little while but I, I've not spoken to anyone who's kind of done um, your kind of research and I think it's a really you know it's a really interesting area um, uh, so could you just tell me a little bit about how you came to doing research on um on on the, this area or, or kind of video games and esports um in general yeah i think i mean the first thing is that not very many people i would say are within sociology are looking at games right so um you know my interest in games actually comes from my own biography playing them at a, a fairly high level and then you know, going into other areas, as you say, social theory and political protest. But when I moved to Manchester, um, I had some space and time to kind of explore games, particularly from a consumer perspective. Um, and so I started writing around them in terms of my interests and kind of drawing together some of the uh, theoretical interests that I had, um, but applying them to the to the study of games and as and, and, and esports in particular, which is uh, the kind of professionalization of competitive gaming which we're seeing emerging very much in the past couple of years anyway. So when I got to MMU, I, like I say, I sat down and started thinking about, well, how do we make sense of this thing called eSports, um, but from a kind of player perspective? And so uh, what interests me really was, you know, what, what, how the act of actually sitting down and playing a video game shapes how we think and act in the world um, and how the kind of broader social, cultural, political and economic structures that we intersect within in our everyday lives then shapes that decision-making processes. And I think that we see that in particular in the context of esports or elite competitive gaming um, because there are a number of pressures taking place there. So that's really how I got onto this track. And then I kind of have, again, being a player, being a gamer myself, I kind of... Um, have a number of different angles and interests and probably you know uh reflected in the articles that i've written in the past couple of years you could have probably see actually that i've come at games from a, a number of different directions um it's not just about the if you like the um it's not just about esports it's also about um or reflexivity it's also about kind of more deeper, almost Freudian, uh, psychoanalytic understandings of games. And then more recently, I've kind of had a uh, um, some time with Heidegger um, and started to uh, 
come from games from this more kind of embodied and, and cognitive dimension and my work really at the moment focuses a lot on the hand and how the hand shapes our perceptions of work when we play games um, and the kind of rewarding nature of that. That's, yeah, that's really fascinating. So that, that idea of the, the hand and that kind of um, phenomenological aspect, I suppose, at least in that Heideggerian sense, is, uh, is really interesting. And um, I think um, something I've not really properly thought through, actually, which comes up, I think, in, in, in a few of your, your recent writings, um, is the kind of the importance of that physical, um, like the physical labour that goes into um, uh, into playing games uh, and particularly in, in, into being good at them um, uh, for those people um, uh, engaged in esports and those kinds of things. The amount of hours that it takes to do that, and and so I'm I, I used to play games a, a bit, not to, not on anything like the level that you did, and uh, I don't so much anymore. But I am. Um, I do suffer from a repetitive strain injury from kind of computer use through work and this kind of thing. And reading about some of the, the amounts of hours um, that, that people put into this kind of just really made me, made me wince. Um, yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it's also big, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, what, what, what interests me, I mean, it's even deeper than the phenomenological, right? I mean, right. what I'm working on at the moment with the hand is going down to... I wouldn't, it's getting closer to the anatomical. Um, right. It's not there quite yet, but I'm very interested in prehension. Yes. So how do we effectively shape our hand? I mean, some of this comes from Senate, um, but it also um, comes from another, a, a number of other writers, Raymond Tallis in particular, um, how we actually develop the tacit knowledge, if you like, um, needed to... Um, manipulate a, a keyboard and mouse as an example it could be a controller these days it could be a mobile device as well I mean some of the biggest esports titles today like Fortnite are now yeah. very much mobile um, but the important point there really is that you know there is this yeah very strong connection between well at least for me plenty of people have written about the eye I should say and the mind but very few people have written about the hand and they've certainly not written about it in, at, at such a level as the hand kind of just gets dismissed. It's it, mm. it's almost positioned as robotic and automated. Um, and that's what fascinates me the most about it, I guess, mm. is that if you actually ever played a game, you would know that it's very not, it's not like that at all. Mm. <laughs> you have to learn to be able to uh, do uh, some of these things that professional gamers do. And mm. there's a metric in, in gaming called actions per minute that's particularly well known. And you know most strategy games kind of an average casual player might be something between 30 to 60 actions per minute but you know you have professional players turning out something around three to four hundred which yeah. it just gives you just the, even that slight metric and i mean these days that metric has actually become almost a political economy to that metric interestingly um has become you know, a mainstay of understanding how a gamer develops skill in that space. Mm -hmm. And it, starts, it very much begins with the hand as I see it, because it's the hand that initiates, as a, I think I've written, the hand that it, it is the hand that initiates the first experiences of human agency in gameplay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and for that reason. So um, not, not to make this uh, banal or uh, anything like that, but just uh, to get my kind of understanding around it, what is it you, you mean by that notion of prehension? Uh, is, is that sort of related to a kind of muscle memory kind of idea? Uh, well, no. Um, it's, I mean, where it's located is obviously between the mind and the hand, right? Yeah. Um, a kind of neurobiological, you know, right. neurophysiological presence in the brain. But the way that, you know, feminologists um, like uh, Raymond Tallis and others have written about it, um, is that it, it is almost the hand's own presence of agency. And right. prehension is basically the capacity of the hand to act before it knows. Yep. So, you know, when you pick up a, gl a glass or a cup, your hand already curvatures mm. in such a way as to be able to manipulate it. Well, the, the, the thing that interests me in the context of games or gameplay is that the hand does exactly the same in relationship to a controller or controls, right? Is that once you you ever see somebody try to play a game for the very first time and the hands are all over the place? Yeah. And over time, you kind of refine your capacity to manipulate the keys and the keyboard and so forth and so on in such a way that you can actually 
do what you want. So it becomes a tool that they become tools that you're manipulating towards mm. a given end. Um, you know, and I've in the past I've made analogies to, you know, a carpenter trying to find a, a particular cut or plane on a piece of wood. Like you learn how to manipulate the tool in order to achieve a given end. Now, what interests me the most are probably about the hand in this um, aspect. Um, and I didn't, I'm, I'm trying to write this up at the moment, actually, but it's not as well covered in my article on is gaming a craft. Um, mm. But it's part, it's, it, it, it's in there, prehension is in there. And what it focuses on is this idea that there's a subset of prehension known as precision movements um, or precision grip. And there are different types of grips. There are different ways that we grip things, as you can imagine. Gripping a hammer is very different to gripping um, a, a pen or a pencil. Um, and as you can probably guess, different kinds of grips have different kinds of outworkings. Yeah. And when we get towards precision, we have very different, when we're trying to write, we have very different ends in mind. That's when we're trying to hit something with a hammer. Um, and I think the same is true of gaming. Um, and I'm sure we could talk at length about this, but what interests me specifically about the hand uh, when it comes to manipulate a gaming control, how it is always oriented towards precision. And so because it's oriented towards precision, um, it also means that it's open to um, very kind of hypothetical deductive logic, um, mm. sometimes instrumental logic, one might say but also uh, very open towards metrification and quantification. Um, and these are kinds of systems and symbols that we, and games designers generally design, are designing into games and esports titles more and more and more. So there's a kind of reciprocal relationship here between um, the hand and what it's trying to almost craft out of the materials of games and the way that these environments are designed to facilitate and reward that experience. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's so interesting. And that kind of depth of analysis, I think is, yeah, it, it, it sounds really, really fruitful. But, um, and just to kind of, kind of ground this in, because we've been, I realised we've been talking about esports and, and possibly not everyone would know uh, exactly what we mean by esports. But um, as I understand it, um, the, the, the kinds of people, um, uh, experiences or um, scenarios you, you've been analysing in terms of esports, you're talking about basically uh, elite professional level um, uh, video game players who um, uh, play for usually for prize money um, to some, yeah. some, some, some may get kind of uh, salaries and things like this. But I think uh, this is where that particularly that the um, uh, those kinds of uh, is it the actions per minute ratios um, uh, and the particularly the quantification of that kind of comes in. You mentioned about being part of a, or, or f forming a sort of political economy almost mm -hmm. um i'm sure if you could say something about that i think what you mentioned in one of your articles is how how that becomes a kind of um uh, th th those kinds of scores become a kind of a uh a, 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 a way of a way of um distributing kind of status or a way of getting yeah. access into um I I into an elite team or getting sponsorship or or uh, or, or access to those areas would that be right yeah uh yeah, yeah, yeah. To give things a little bit of structure, maybe, <laughs> or just focus on the, the the problems of treating players' work article, yeah. um, and 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 then build it up into into the other ones. So, esports really is about the professionalization of computer gaming. So, when we talk about esports, or what is esports, we're talking about how playing a video game competitively has increasingly become professionalized. And what professionalization means here is. Um, like in other industries and other sports, is a whole ecosystem of policymakers, coaches, money, sponsorship, uh, organizations, um, competitions, so forth and so on, um, that try to refine uh, playing a video game at an elite or competitive level. Um, and and so that's kind of what esports is, and it, it is uh, as probably many of you audience are aware now who's kind of boomed yeah. in the past three years I would say three to five years maximum um, it's all it's existed for a long time I mean I used to play um, at a fairly decent level almost 17 years ago but it, it never had the money or the the kind of 
sponsorship or you know organization that it has mm. today um, and today what we're seeing is uh, not only millions tens of millions or hundreds of millions actually of uh, players playing some of the most popular esports titles like League of Legends um, but we're, we're seeing it associated with audiences of esports now so we're seeing millions of people watching these games um, online live streaming through Twitch YouTube and so forth and so on so one of the reasons why it's become such a uh, so popular or of interest particularly to policymakers I would say um, and business is because it potentially indicates a changing nature of sport and the digital transformations taking place in sport. Um, my angle on it and is in that in in that paper is probably a little bit more critical um, about esports. Um, and the, the idea of the paper really is was to think about um, and, and was to draw on theoretical resources that would, would uh, invite us to stand back and think. A little bit about the processes of rationalization almost in the Weberian sense although yeah. it, it actually comes from the work of Roger Kawa um, I should say who's fairly popular in, in, in kind of game studies and games research and it's actually within a special issue on his work um, about the kind of processes of rationalization that take place on play when you begin to kind of formalize a rule structure around a game, but on the basis of money um, and on the basis of subsistence. Mm. And so really what, I, what, interest, what was interesting to me was that KWA a long time ago, uh, probably oh, put me on the spot, probably through 50 years ago, mm. after, you know, about 50 years ago, uh, at least easily forewarned of the, the rationalization of play as a result of economic pressures and the kind of impact that this would have. Now, we obviously didn't ever foretell the emergence of esports, um, but what we were seeing in esports, what we still are seeing in esports today, is a very precarious working environment where many young people kind of enter um, because of a passion for gaming, but really do not have a way of navigating um, a very competitive, um, almost pyramid-like structure. And so, you know, the numbers just don't add up effectively. I mean, there are tens of thousands of esports competitions taking place every year with many, 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 many more players associated with them. But maybe something like only the maybe the top 100 players in the world were ever earning anything that could be considered a basic salary. Yeah. And maybe only if the top 10 were ever earning anything that could be considered, you know, equivalent to elite sports in football or, you know, rugby or something like that. And so when, when I wrote the paper as a kind of intervention, what I wanted to look at was how actually some of this political economy was shaping esports players' decision-making um, as a career strategy. Um, and I use KY as a kind of lens there really to talk about how money uh, factors in making uh, esports players making very instrumental decision-making processes. Um, which is important because they need these instrumental decision-making processes to be good at the game in the first place. Yeah. So there's an interesting reci reciprocity here between becoming very hypothetical deductive in terms of being able to solve puzzles quickly and effectively, whilst also establishing yourself almost in an entrepreneurial, ready mm -hmm. for entrepreneurial neoliberalism, if you like. Um, you have to be kind of ruthless and cutthroat and... Um, you have to, for lack of a better term, um, which I do use in the article, develop a survival strategy um, and to endure these precarious working environments. And what interests me was kind of this overlap or this, this reciprocity between players who were very, very good at the game and yet were also um, ready to participate in things like match fixing. Um, so, you know, cheating effectively. Uh, because that's, a, because that's a sort of a, an extension of that of that hyper rational logic, yeah, yeah, of that logic, yeah. And so, you know, theoretically, what I tried to do with the with the article, which was a bit different, again, was actually bring in the work of Margaret Archer. Um, and so, I kind of brought in Archer's study of reflexivity as a 
as a kind of complement to some of the theoretical uh, gaps in Kawa's work um, to try to, to map how um, a kind of a player recognises, um, you know, that uh, play itself gives rise to these intrinsic rewards. They enjoy them. You know, play is enjoyable and so forth and so on. But how they actually if you like make the transition from players an intrinsic award to players an extrinsic award or the pursuit of an extrinsic award um, and the impact that that actually has on their reflexive decision-making. So really that was the kind of um, the, the idea behind that paper was that for me, theoretically, I should say that for me, reflexivity is actually the bridge between these intrinsic and extrinsic rewards um, that you know, we recognise that money is out there. We recognise that play is good for us, but it's actually kind of how people play games and how people and they become better at games kind of sets us up to become uh, more aligned with the pursuit of extrinsic rewards. So that's really kind of how I concluded it was that you know the problems of treating work, uh, tra treating play as work, is that it has a danger of uh, in in Kawa's sense of corrupting play or corrupting that you know the play instinct it it turns it into work and for KY historically play and work was supposed to be um you try to keep those domains as separate as possible yeah and that's I mean we, we've seen um lots of areas of um of sport and game and play become become rationalized to varying extents um we've only got to think back to you know many kind of sports in the early 20th century were um, decidedly and uh, and deliberately kept uh, amateur for a long time, um, uh -huh. um, and of course that's kind of a, one of the maybe perhaps the inherent logics of capitalism that it that, that it seeks to kind of um, take over the, the extract the, value. Well, extract value exactly, <laughs> and it does that through these kinds of rational processes. And, and you talk about some of the the impacts of those kinds of of that rationalisation, which people take on to themselves. So I suppose semi-willingly, but um, because of the structures of that system, in terms of um, almost turning themselves uh, and their, their their lifestyles into a, into a kind of a factory-like process, um, mm -hmm. in order to achieve um, and to, to hopefully get into that top uh, ten percent of people who can actually make make some kind of living um, off this. Uh, and the evidence and the evidence is there. I mean, I talk about it in the paper you know, specifically, but, you know, you have cafes or, you know, uh, rooms and dorms uh, effectively set up, not only in South Korea, where it was particular, where it's particularly big, but also in the US and increasingly in Europe and other places that, in a sense, um, you know, uh, create the conditions of possibility for factory-like working. Um, and, you know, if, if you like, if profit or I would personally, I would say subsistence yeah. is the goal um, that um, you're then spending, you know, 12 hours a day kind of, you know, producing these kind of, if you like, 300 APM outputs for, for long periods of time. And yeah, they're obviously, they're having huge physiological impacts. I mean, uh, the BBC, I think, ran a, a, a news article um, on some Korean esports players, you know, you can kind of see down their forearms, just the scars where effectively they've just had to, you know, effectively rebuild parts of the arm as a result of the forearm as part of just spending, you know, three to four years, five years of their life gaming at, at, at that kind of level. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that, that's, it's really, it's, it is kind of um, quite horrifying. Uh, some of those kinds of pictures that are painted. Um, but then th there's also something I found really fascinating as well is um, when you're drawing on um, Roger uh, Kailua, um this idea of uh, maybe on a kind of a, on a, a more uh, on a broader level of a connection he makes between kind of um, th this kind of rationalization of games, which he sees as, I think, inherently problematic on that on the level we've just talked about. And because yeah. I assume because games should be something pleasurable and uh, and maybe a respite from from the more rational uh, 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 rationalized aspects of our lives that we, we we can't really avoid, but also makes this kind of connection between that kind of rationalization with sort of uh, fascist ideology. Um, could you could you say something about uh, how that's seen as working? 
Okay, yeah. So I think I think the general point um, that you know Kwal was making was, I mean, when he was writing, he was very kind of critical or anxious about the emergence of fascism, and you know, for for Kwal, what he saw was that fascist systems, you know, would often present themselves as egalitarian, as you know, um, fair, um, but actually in many ways sought to. Uh, kind of systematized merit and actually in, in some senses use games as a mechanism by which um, you know merit was achieved um, and the thing for Kwar or the thing that for Kwar that he was critical about he was very critical of, of, of games of chance effectively because he thought that games of chance was a mechanism by which um, it kind of offered people like lo the lottery is a good example offers people a sense of luck mm. um, and, um, you know, and, and they participate it and it has this impact that, you know, effectively, uh, you know, as lotteries or games of chance often win and, you know, gambling more generally is a good example of this is that the house always wins, right? Mm. Um, and in many ways, it actually just foregrounds the conditions of possibility for, for further competition mm. um, between people as they try and find more and more ways to, to beat the game, as it were. Um, and, I, I, and I would say in the context of the article, I think what I you know, it, it was alluding to uh, in the context of esports is that the political economy of it is so skewed and, and, and it's very, very difficult for young people to be successful. But it is presented and, you know, celebrity culture plays a strong role here within the esports community as well. But it, it does, it offers many, many young people a, a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of stardom, a glimmer of, you know, of making it by playing video games for a living, right? And, you know, for to just to draw on Kwar really here, you know, for him, he was very anxious about this as becoming the basis on which, you know, social... Uh, ontology you know social relationships operate because ultimately it would lead to a form of urban life whereby we emphasize competition as the basis for personal mobility yeah we'd be you know we use we interact through games because games are presented as a fair and egalitarian space i mean mm. many gamers would say to you you know if you're good at the game it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what you look like what your social demographic is as long as you're good at the game right but the problem with that kind of logic is that um, it it ignores or it, you know the, the the many factors that influence you getting to the keyboard in the first place, if you like, um, or you know, for example, simply just having the time available to play at a, at that kind of level, you know, who you need vast amounts of capital to be able to play video games, if, you know, twelve hours a day, you know, it just doesn't. You know, it just doesn't materialise from nowhere. So I think Kwal was just very in touch with the idea that games um, can often be presented as an egalitarian space, but they actually um, hide, um, you know, a very kind of one-sided logic behind them. The, yeah, no, that, that, makes, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think the way you've contextualised that uh, really helps with that as well in terms of, um, re relating that to, like as you say, gambling and particularly things like the lottery, um, uh, and um, and it, it makes me think of, as you said, in that broader kind of um, celebrity culture of of X Factor and you know kind of uh, Instagram celebrities and this kind of thing. And um, uh, yeah, I suppose it, it just really makes me think. I suppose I've always really thought there's something a little bit fascist about the X Factor and uh, uh, and, and about the national lottery, uh, and that does that does sort of make some sense there. But yeah, it, absolutely. That, but that obscuring of of those relations that are behind that supposedly uh, egalitarian and open. Um, yeah, it offers it offers it offers people with. I mean, uh, the episode in um, Black Mirror, one of the ones that haunts me the most, probably. I think it's from the first season, mm. and he kind of does a very dystopian view of ten thousand credits. Or, yeah. yeah, that one, that one where they're all psyched. Yeah, that one, that one, and um, yeah, it still haunts me. And yeah, and it very much it presents the idea of a you know that those with a limited it, games present those with limited life opportunities as a means of working class escape. Right, you know, it's a chance for them 
for the working poor to kind of attain a vision of luxury and glory that only they could only otherwise dream of. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is exactly why uh, games of chance for KWA function very conservatively within society. They actually act as a means of controlling the population uh, through a kind of institutionalized form of competition, I guess. And the, the, what emerges from that is the myth of chance, right? The myth of overcoming inequality, the myth of, you know, overcoming unfairness through a, 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 a ruled game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, those connections you, you're making all the way through your work, I think is so fascinating. It, it, the connections with work uh, and with, with notions of craft on that kind of more um, uh, sort of uh, uh, Heideggerian kind of uh, level, but those connections <laughs> with, with work as well, I think are, are, are so interesting. And, and something slightly obscurely that it made me think about was, um, I think it's, is it, is it Laurie uh, Wakant uh, who, who uh, did that analysis, I think, in the 90s of, um, sort of gym culture, might have been in the 80s. Yeah, boxes, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but so boxing gyms, and, and, and uh, giving this this way of um, usually young uh, young men with very few life opportunities, and possibly in a lot of cases, not, not any work or very limited or uh, work at all, uh, ways to go to work uh, in that context to go and work on their bodies and, and this kind of thing. But mm -hmm. um, it seems like a, a, a different, but in, to some extent, similar kind of demographic of of young men, perhaps with limited op other opportunities, giving this, this this sense of being able to go and work. Because a lot of the games you're talking about, you know, they're, they're, obviously they're not the kind of fr uh, relatively frivolous kind of arcade fun. It is it is uh, deep, intense kind of um, in some sometimes, sometimes yeah, yeah, repetitive labour. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think that what you know what what one thing I'll say about kind of the things that I've been writing about recently is that I, I engage this very question from both angles. So while I recognise the problems, I recognise um, the the deep embodied pleasures that are also associated with it, right? And that's where my oscillation lies. Mm. Uh, is between recognizing that within the current political economy playing games professionally can be problematic but playing games professionally can also be a great source of creativity and experimentation mm. right and that's you know and it's that kind of constant oscillation if you like of capitalism trying to derive value from things it finds ways to colonize and you know um you know the creative resources of that emerge out of games and so you know you see youtube culture you know twitch live streaming you see the creativity that players generate through their skilled practice and then systems and platforms emerging to find ways to generate value out of that creativity that's how i kind of see the relationship between the two i mean you know i'm no i'm no fan of bourdieu i'm no fan of uh Waquant personally within the context that you know the danger is talking about predispositions or you know yeah. the idea of that the system predisposes anyone you know labor to 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 a life of 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 uncritical challenge of these systems because you know particularly within gaming there is so much agency to be found i think um and i just don't want to sound the death knell for for gamers at all actually because you know, when you begin to actually unpack uh, what they actually do with their hands um, and the, 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 not just the time or, that goes into it, but the, the, the labour, the craft, sorry, is the word I'm looking for, the craft of learning to play a game well, it's just a deeply rewarding experience. And there's a danger, I think, maybe, maybe with the, with with other theoretical frameworks of kind of abstracting away from that yeah. and then just relocating it in a kind of Marxist critique, mm. yeah, or proto-Marxist critique. Um, and while there is certainly scope for that within my article on KWA, um, when when engaging with Senate, and I would say more generally just American pragmatism, um, you see how the theoretical influences, you know, reshape the debate slightly. And so you know, my more recent work, I am aware 
Um, and I do at the end of the article on gaming as a craft, uh, again, foreground the discussion about how competition gives rise to exclusion and mm. potentially toxic and some might even say hyper-masculine spaces. Um, and that's an outworking, I should say, of kind of really expertise um, in some senses. And the Senate forewarns against that, right? You know, quite a long time ago, that when you turn, you know, kind of craft into an expert pursuit for very, very, you know, defined end, even the means become almost, well, repetitive and, you know, there's no enjoyment from them anymore. It's just about the ends that then that's where you can get into very um, toxic spaces. Um, and, I, you know, there is that, certainly there's that possibility in the context. And, you know, there's been lots talked about, you know, about the toxic toxicity of the gaming community. And, and I can see, it, you can see it when you start to look at how um, driven uh, towards expertise um, these systems of play are. Um, you know, I know that you're very, interested in quantification and metrics yeah. i don't know of many spaces in, in 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 social life as well monitored as a video game no. as a modern esports title right because they're just every every click and every action has an almost corresponding value uh that you can display and see and you know and it, this feeds into kind of the sport, the sporting culture more generally, because this is what audiences want to consume as well. They want to know, you know, how much goal per minute someone's farming, how many actions per minute they're playing, what's this ratio, kill death ratio, what's this ratio, what's this ratio, so forth and so on. Um, so there's, you know, there's a very, there's a demand for that expertise as well that, you know, I, that I think feeds into the market. But on the other hand, Take the non-expert for the moment, just take somebody who sits down and plays a game, not maybe for the first time, but finds themselves kind of uh, enveloped in this relationship with playing a game. I, I, you know, the purpose of that article was very, very seriously to engage with the idea if it could be considered a craft, because mm. for me, just there are so many synergies between what we understand uh, a traditional craft to be and the kind of the first moments of interacting with a game. And so I drew heavily, as I say, on Senate and, and others to really drew, kind of pull that out to say, well, what does it mean to pick up a mouse? I mean, you know, what, what kind of cognitive and embodied processes do we have to go through to actually make sense of a very basic set of rules? And as analogous to, you know, learning for the very first time to I you know drill a hole in the wall and you know hang up a, a you know hang up some curtains or something like that you know or like I say carve you know or uh, play in a piece of wood what are the the, the hand practices or the handwork um, as I'm come to talk about it now um, that, that, that goes into that and that's as I say I just found a lot of synergies uh, within the Within, within the two practices that I broke down into contact, apprehension, language acquisition and reflection with the four that I talked about, contact being, you know, the first moments of contact. Uh, what does it mean to actually touch something on a keyboard? Uh, you know, what sensations do we, how do we use those sensations to make sense of something? That's apprehension. So how do we apprehend the rules of a game? Well, we can only do it by pressing things in the context of gameplay, right? Language acquisition is probably one of the most interesting ones for me because this is really where almost Goffman-esque, you know, study of language and symbols, into, you know, you know uh, impacts on how we navigate gameplay spaces. Because, you know, with, with traditional craft practices and, and the guild, as it, you know, once were, you know, we had we lived in proximal space. And so we, we negotiate with one another with very clear symbols, you know, gestures effectively um, that we would use to indicate you know, our skill. Well, how do gamers do it online when you don't necessarily have those forms of interaction? And so this is, there's an, a, an interesting reciprocity here between game development and gameplay, where gamers are telling developers that they need these tools to be able to gesture effectively to their teammates. Um, 
And so you've got something very interesting around language acquisition taking place there where effectively players are learning not only how to make sense of what other players are doing, but also direct them, but also to make sense of numeracy and, and all sorts effectively through a, a, a language that has developed within the game. Um, and then finally, reflection being the, the kind of critical one about it being reflexivity, you know, that with any practice, whether it is, again, being a carpenter or being an esports professional, we, when we fail, we, we think about how we're going to improve and what we're going to do next. Um, and the same is true of playing a game, right? We, we sit down and think, well, that didn't work out or that failed. And like I say, there's a whole system of metrics these days to really support um, and forums and communities and all sorts to support players to really reflect on their practices. And I, I don't think I go as far as to say that this is the kind of the reincarnation of the guild of old. I don't think that it is. But um, I do think that there is a community space there by which people are reflecting on their practices and that that gives rise to, to craft experiences. Yeah, I mean, that's that's so interesting. And that really, um, just to kind of, uh, I won't keep you too much longer, but just to kind of connect with with another one of your articles that you wrote about on video game consumption. And um, mm. that, on that on that final point about the reflection and uh, uh, getting towards those more positive, um, potentially positive aspects that you, that you really correctly uh, you know in my view uh, um, uh, highlight and, and try to centralize but th that that issue of the, the role of, sort of failure in reflection and actually what you talk about in, yeah. in this other article is the is the um the importance and the actual enjoyment almost kind of i don't know if perverse is the right word but enjoyment in taking a failure and this it is the right word. thank you thank yeah, you <laughs> but that but that really connected me as well for someone who spent several years as a teenager coming forth in um, on in mario kart that, that, that this uh, pleasure is taken in failure kind of really um resonated with me but um I think, I, i'm glad that you brought the, the last article up it is probably the one out of all three that i'm most proud of but it's the one that i don't get to talk about very often <laughs> uh, because for me it is it is perhaps the one i think actually makes I mean, the, the craft one is it makes a contribution because no one looks at the hand. But theoretically, the, 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 the apophatic dimension paper is the one that I think, you know, theoretically really does something different because it says that, you know, when we look at gamers, we, we, we tend to focus on how active and interactive and, you know, as one of my other papers did, how instrumental and directed they are. Um, and what I wanted to do with the consumption paper was completely turn that on its head and actually say that, yes, pleasures can be derived from very intentional actions, you know, from very instrumental actions almost. But what's the other side of that? Like, what is the, what is the, you know, I perverse, I didn't use that in the paper, um, but the apophatic meaning, you know, how do we generate, you know, pleasure from the negative or how do we develop, um, you know, a positive experience might not be the right word, but how do we attribute value to something negative like failure? Um, and it's for me, the apophatic is another mode of reflexivity. Yeah, it's it's not that these are two mutually exclusive experiences. You can either have an apophatic or you can either have a, you know, an apophatic experience or an instrumental one. I think gamers have both. Mm. Uh, I think these modes are very uh, are quite fluid, actually, and there are others. There are others as well. Um, but yeah, w what really got me about the that the, the, the apophatic was that you know anyone who's ever played a game knows what it is to work. Where did, it was Hegelian in its form this paper because yeah. it's very much about the labour of the negative, yeah, and it's about grasping with that idea that actually what we take from labor is not success it's failure um because when we fail we're, we're we're actually forced to confront ourselves and i don't just mean ourselves as a worker i mean ourselves as a personal project our identities um and that we open ourselves up a little bit almost psychoanalytically as a result of failure um, and so really that was what that paper is trying to capture about games is that, you know, that when we, when, when we face the, the, almost the unsayable nature of, 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 of failure, um, we're actually in conversation, in a very deep conversation with ourselves. 
Um, and that actually open, might even potentially open us up a little bit spiritually. Uh, but it definitely opens up, I, should, us, I would say, sociologically. Um, you know, failure is a great mechanism for laughter. Failure is a great mechanism for um, diffusing social responsibility and actually creating uh, connections with, with one another. I, I talk in that paper about phatic interactions, I think, towards the end. You know, the, the kind of people who, you know, people laugh off when someone makes a, a mistake in a video game. They laugh at one another, but not in a way to necessarily deride them, although that can certainly happen. More in a laugh, you know, more as a way of subverting the idea of a of serious play environment. Um, and I think that that is um, another plane of, of, of which the video gaming experience, the video gaming experiences exist. And it's a very, for me, it's a, it's a very powerful one. And it's certainly one that I, I, I intend to revisit at some point um, because I, I think there is something much more to be said about how they, how failure and, how I mean, pain is probably a strong, too strong a term, but how the labour of the negative actually is connects through games, but also more broadly to contemporary consumer experiences. Yeah, and I think that that's that's so important because in in any sort of enterprise we engage in, I suppose whether it is video games um, or it's, it's writing or any kind of work we do. Uh, certainly for me, my main experience of it is failure, and you keep failing until you get. <laughs> Whether that's just failure in terms of you read something back you've written and think that's that's crap, I'm going to go back and, and make it better, or or, or or someone else telling you that, or whatever. You, you, most of the time, you're kind of failing until you're not. So that's the process of working it through, I suppose. Uh, and I think you, you make this. Um, I don't know if you took it from someone else, or it's, it's your kind of wording. Some, say something like, "We may dislike failing in games, but we dislike not failing even more." Um, yeah, that's uh, actually from Yes, but you'll. But yes, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that, yeah, that's, and, that's a really nice uh, kind of uh, way of phrasing that as well. And it made me think about that because, of course, no one likes really easy video games either. Um, if you can just walk through it, then then that's that, that's kind of pointless. Um, mm -hmm. um, and like you say, we only really learn um, and learn something about our, our, not just the skills, but learn something about ourselves through that kind of failure. But uh, just to kind of um, finally really uh, make that connection on that on that kind of final point, you you make this suggestion that there's this sort of broader connection with consumer culture and this notion of failure. I wonder if you could mm -hmm. explain that a little bit further. Uh, failure, failure is a platform for, I think, um, punishment. <laughs> punishment? Am I going to say that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, failure is a platform for punishment and, um, and kind of a, a darker side of, of play. So, you know, the emergence of, extreme sports the emergence of right. tough mudder you know the emergence of you know it, what, what strikes me is more and more consumer activities that seem to be pointed towards struggle as the main thing that you're consuming if that makes sense yeah, it um, does, yeah. And, 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 and that's really where the reward is I met someone might beat me to the punch now <laughs> that I've said that, but really the, 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 the next article at some point would be yeah. uh, to kind of really explore the idea that, um, you know, there is, um, there is a, there is a movement in consumption um, or, you know, leisure more generally towards not just the experience economy or the pleasure, you know, pleasurable experiences, but actually kind of the inverse and what what I would say about that is that the apophatic the lens of the apophatic as a kind of theoretical framework is very useful for understanding that um, because it gives us the kind of the and it's from Mazelis um, it gives us the kind of um, the the conceptual framework needed to understand why we might derive uh, purpose and value from something that would be attributed to 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 otherwise be considered negative yeah um i think yeah i think that there's a lot to a lot to unpack with that and i i really think you're you're kind of onto something and i i, I just recently for the first time um went into one of these um escape room type games uh, right yeah and it, it, what you're just saying kind of really made me think about that we singularly failed to uh, to, to complete in the allotted kind of hour time we had um but that's that i think that that's 
relates to that kind of uh, that kind of idea as well. Um, oh yeah, puzzle puzzle making. You know, solving a puzzle. Indeed, um, you know, I, I think I wrote about it in the craft paper about you know games are oblique puzzles, right? Like yeah. we just you know they, they're designed that we don't know how to solve them. We have to struggle through them. Um, and it's the, the journey that matters uh, to play on the mm. title of a, yeah. a very good game, I should say. Um, you know, the idea that what we derive, and this is part of the apophatic framework, that what we derive, how we derive value from a negative experience is by understanding the, the journey through which we overcome it, if you like, or how we confront it. And in the apophatic paper, I, you know, I talked a little bit about, it was just a very small case study, because uh, it's a theory paper, um, was around um, a gamer actually who played Dark Souls, which is a notoriously difficult game, um, and failure or, or you died is kind of the, the, the infamous catchphrase of this game, because the game constantly evolves around your attempts to overcome its puzzles. So as you're trying to figure things out, it's evolving effectively. Um, and so you can spend hours trying to learn how to kill a boss and the boss will just change his dynamics effectively. Um, and it, this particular individual was talking about his experience with OCD. And he says that it was hell, right? Like the idea of someone with OCD to play Dark Souls was hellish uh, because, you know, it's, it, it was the constant presence of their worst nightmare right um you know having to interact with the constant presence of their their, their, their worst nightmare and yet what fascinated me and I'm, you know again it's just a case study about the way that they were talking about their experience of dark souls was that in actually playing it and getting frustrated and getting upset and angry it forced them to have a conversation with themselves about their um about their other anxieties right yeah. Um, and I just thought that that was, you know, that's what I meant when I talk about it psychoanalytically, is that it, it opens up the space for that dialogue. I'm not saying, and in that case, I'm certainly not saying that it resolved that particular person's issues. I don't know, you know, but I think that the fact that it can open up that form of dialogue says something about the nature of games that I don't think has been engaged with before. No. Yeah, that's... Um... That's some really deep stuff, which we'll we'll end on there. <laughs> but um, it's been um, really fascinating to talk to you, uh, Tom. Thanks for taking your time out uh, to have a chat, and uh, look forward to um, seeing your work uh, develop uh, along those lines as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. All right. Uh, thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. Hi, and welcome to the 17th episode of the Digital Sociology Podcast. Um, I'm Chris Till, and um, in this episode, I'm talking to Tom Brock, who I'll introduce properly in a minute when in the actual interview, um, but um, we're talking about his research, uh, which is really fascinating, um, into esports and video games in general, and I think, uh, as well as doing some really great research, um, He's looking at some areas and, and applying theories to areas in ways that I, I've not really seen anyone else doing. Um, so uh, I think you'll um, you'll enjoy this this chat I had with Tom. Uh, for more information on Tom, I'll put some links into the uh, into the description of the the episode, as well as some links to the the articles of his that that we're talking about. But you can also follow Tom on Twitter at tgjbrock. B R O C K um, for more on what he's up to, and uh, as usual, um, it'd be great if if anyone has any comments on this episode or, or on any of the episodes and wants to get in touch um, or, and has any kind of feedback or ideas for people um, I, uh, I should be talking to. I'd uh, really appreciate that. Uh, you can um, see my blog and, and contact me through there, which is this is not a sociology dot blog, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chris H Till uh, as well. So hope you enjoy uh, this uh, this chat with Tom. <laughs> 